Ryan Stanton here with ASEP Frontline today uh, here from ASEP 23 in Philadelphia. I'm already messing up, uh, but uh, joined today by uh, Dr. Fionn Davis. She's the president of the International Federation for Emergency Medicine, IFM, and uh, visiting here. And so uh, wanted to drop in and get a, a kind of a state of the union and, and uh, on some of emergency medicine, because that is one of the growing areas for us here with ASEP is, is the uh, international component. Uh, and with the growth of emergency medicine around the world, we're seeing a significant increase in interest and abilities to um, to build on each other's successes and avoid uh, potential uh, failures and difficulties. So uh, first and foremost, thanks for joining us here on the front line and give us a little background on yourself. Hi, Ryan. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here at ASEP at the, uh, at the convention, and it's just uh, such a massive operation. It really is uh, interesting to see. I've done a lot of conferences in this, in this last... Um, year or two and uh, it's just fascinating. It's a good way of measuring what's going on around the world. So my organization, it's the International Federation for Emergency Medicine. We are a federation, so we're membership based. Membership are, member societies are the EM societies of that nation or of that region. And we've seen uh, obviously regions like North America, Australasia uh, already had a big presence in emergency medicine, but we've seen those uh, we've seen those regional organizations for Latin America, Africa, Asia, and throughout the Middle East just go from zero to 100 in this last decade. So it's a fascinating position to be in as president and be able to make those comparisons and tour those conferences. And so it's great for me to be here and see what's going on in this part of the world. Yeah, so uh, welcome to our conference that has about 7,500 of our closest friends um, and uh, here at the Philadelphia Convention Center, which is giant. Uh, I've gotten all my steps in already today, and we're still only halfway through the day. Uh, but give us a background, because here in the United States, you know, for, for the most part, other than being urban versus rural, critical access, those types of things, the emergency medicine system is pretty established and consistent across the country. But as you mentioned with the Federation, you have countries that are far along the way and others that either have nothing or just very much in its infancy. So, you know, instead of dealing with potentially the uh, generations of physicians, you're actually de uh, working with the generations of EM development. So talk about that balance and that, that experience of having uh, such a variability in the maturity of the EM systems around the world. Yeah, it's a very good question, Ryan, because um, you'll find within a nation or within a region, you'll get the same degree of variety. So you will see um, departments that are small, rural, isolated, facing closure, etc. in any part of the world. You'll see those huge inner city departments anywhere in the world. And you'll see that some in some nations, the private sector does better than the public sector. In other nations, it's a different way around, depending on the model of government. And you just see that variation in almost every region of the world. So even places that are developing emergency medicine as a specialty with a residency program for the first time, um, they may become very advanced very quickly, take absolute swathes of the Middle East where that's happened in the last 10 years. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you have, for example, in Europe, um, some countries still struggling to recognize emergency medicine. Spain's been campaigning for 30 years to get recognized. Others where it's recognized, but just not taking off because of political battles. Um, and other nations that have had emergency medicine for a long time, but still don't really manage to embed themselves into that uh, global health provision of that, of that nation. So uh, within countries, within regions and around the world, you see that wide variety being played out. And when you notice, uh, you mentioned some of the politics. Um, 
And so let's dive into some of those challenges. You know, here in the United States, we're dealing with scope of practice, of boarding, of vertical integration, of corporatization and private equity. What are the big challenges, uh, political challenges and otherwise, uh, that you're dealing with with the Federation? Because everybody is dealing with their big two or three problems or challenges uh, that are out there. What, what are uh, you guys dealing with around the world? I think there are some universal challenges, so I do hope that some of the audience that's listening did notice the overcrowding campaign and the boarding campaign that IFM started back in December of last year. And that was universal. Literally, when I wrote to all the presidents of the societies that belong to us, um, only one came back and said, mm, not really a problem in my country. Everybody else did. And in all the conference circuit that I've been on, um, you just look around the audience, and everyone is nodding, everyone has overcrowding. So, um, so that's an interesting case in point because the factors causing it are different in every country, the fixes are different in every country, and yet it seems a universal problem. So I've been doing deep thinking on this one, and I actually think there's something psychological about the word emergency, that people think that it can't be planned, that you can't plan a patient journey, you don't know what's coming through your doors tomorrow, um, and that chaos is therefore inevitable. And you look at the chaotic scenes in departments, and it's kind of okay. Well, it's, it's not okay, and one of the things we've tried to do is to want to, to help the emergency physicians feel listened to, supported, that someone's campaigning on their behalf, but to, to put the fire back in their bellies because we all burn out and the loss of staff, 20% mm -hmm. medical and nursing vacancies right across the world, it's a rough figure that I've seen in almost every country now, partly post-pandemic, but just because this overcrowding is tolerated, is tolerated and we we just, we almost get used to it. You come into work today and you say, okay, the, the line is long, less, less long than it was yesterday. So it's, we're having a good day and it's not a good day. So um, I think the overcrowding and for us to state that we're a profession, we're a service that des deserves the same recognition and the same boundaries as any other service within the hospitals is really important. And we need to be perhaps addressing those core sentiments more than nitpicking every problem. And every time you solve this problem, next week it's a different one. And you mentioned you actually got into the next question, um, uh, getting out there, because, you know, I've been watching him. I'm really good friends with Dr. Ken Milne, who's the host of the Skeptic's Guide for Emergency Medicine. He's a rural emergency physician in Canada. And, you know, he's been putting up a lot of posts about um, emergency departments that are being, uh, for the lack of a better term, brownout. Um, where you have closures on nights and weekends of these emergency departments because of staffing and availability. Uh, in the United States, that's not allowed. I mean, that it's not technically allowed because the emergency department has to be 24-7, 365. It doesn't say that some don't close, but you don't have temporary uh, brownouts other than for struck, you know, physical plant type things. With the, how are you seeing this rest of the country, uh, the rest of the, of the world, I mean, uh, dealing with, you mentioned the 20% staff shortages, especially on the nurses and support staff, techs, things of that nature, of how, how they're dealing with the, um, the shortages that existed prior to COVID, but COVID just, com you know, just completely uh, blitzed the entire, uh, the entire, well, it fueled it for sure, um, with the shortages and potential closures and the straining on staff and availability. Yeah, um, in more deep thinking moments, I think we almost need a positivity campaign. We need to turn it around and say, this is actually, you know, one of the best careers you can do. You know, that famous quote that emergency medicine is the best 15 minutes of every other specialty. Um, and we must include emergency nursing in this too, because it's so little seen as an actual career path. 
And retaining those staff, keeping core staff, keeping those skills in the department is absolutely fundamental to reducing the chaotic scenes and the overcrowding. So if we can fix that, if we can make our workforce happier, make our workplace a better place, then you know we've, we've run 50% of the battle, really, in, in doing the right thing for our patients. So somehow we do need to create that working environment. And I know that um, various societies around the world, I work in the UK, so the Royal College in the UK, has, um, has, has been very proactive in promoting a healthy, better workplace and workforce. Um, so maybe we need to look a little bit inwardly and see what we can do. Very simple measures sometimes to make the workplace a better place. And perhaps we need to be out there saying, you know, what a great career. Come work in the emergency department. Um, maybe we're victims of our own negativity right now. I don't know. <laughs> it's very possible. It's very possible. As you travel the world, as you mentioned, um, hitting up all of the conferences and things that you're seeing, um, with that variability, with that experience that you have of uh, medicine on the world stage, um, because I'm sure that for many of your physicians uh, within UK's based system, understand that one very well. Uh, United States, you know, we're very accustomed to the US based healthcare system. Um, kind of go through some of that variability you see in the approach to emergency medicine. We have MTALA, where you have the mandatory. Uh, the evaluation stabilization for everybody, no matter without question of, of, of pay or ability to pay. Um, you'll see countries like when I went and did a mission in uh, Ecuador, um, you could go to the emergency department, but if you didn't have the money up front, they you may not get seen. Um, you look at other systems like uh, what you have and uh, thing uh, Canada and Australia. Um, that have more of that universal base system, even though the Australia still has kind of the tiered system. Um, when you travel the world, kind of talk about some of those differences you see in the approach to emergency medicine. Sure. I, I suppose we've segued into uh, what I was determined to bring up today, which is the World Health Assembly Resolution, mm -hmm. which was passed in May. Now, this is a massive achievement for emergency, emergency care. Now, if you work somewhere like North America, you may not be so aware of it because you've got this huge you know, federal and state government that buffers you between the WHO and what you're actually doing in your place. But in many countries, what the WHO says matters, and the resolution is a must-do must mandate to governments. So what we achieved uh, in May of this year um, was a mandate for integrated emergency, critical, and operative care, ECO for short. And the key to this resolution that was passed, there's about four pages of it, and it says really useful stuff, but the word integrated across the patient journey. So the biggest variability that I can see sometimes is that from that time of critical illness, critical injury, through to the right hospital bed, there are so many stages on this timeline. And some countries do the pre-hospital care very well. Places like Europe are a little bit obsessed about having a physician in an ambulance go out to a home. Mm -hmm. um, right through to some place, some countries really major on the critical and operative care. You know, they'll have 28 MRI scanners and 50 million operating suites, but actually they don't have triage in the emergency department. Um, you have services where there are good ambulances in pockets of some cities run by a private company and nothing for the rest of the population, through to very relatively poor countries like Ghana that has now a nationalized ambulance system with a nationalized call-out number. Instead of trying to remember, you know, pick a list of 15 different numbers to call an ambulance. So it just seems as if within many places there are pockets of excellence somewhere along that patient journey. And you can see, you know, poor African hospitals that have the CT scanner right at the front door. And you get in your, your pan scan, trauma scan within 30 minutes of arrival. But the bit before and the bit after doesn't add up. Um, 
And so I think this is a big challenge to governments to make the whole journey add up so that time critical stuff gets dealt with at time critical speed and that you don't have you know, these, these peaks and troughs, I suppose, of provision of healthcare to get that illness or injury treated. Now, do you feel you mentioned the um, kind of the backbone of, of government-based backing of most of the um, most country, well, many countries out there, um, North America, much of Europe being involved as well? Um, how do you bridge that gap in country in countries where there isn't that uh, support available for emergency medicine? Um, you know, and as much as we complain about the funding. Uh, processes here in the United States, which is a lot of cost shifting. Um, there's other countries that really have zero minimal support for emergency medicine. How do you build a system when you don't have either the government support or private sector support to make it happen? Do you know what's amazed me in, in the stories that I've heard, Ryan, is the power of the emergency physician really to tell a patient's story and tell a convincing story that emergency care matters. Because as soon as you highlight it to, you know, the next 10 people walking down the street. People know that in their heart of hearts. So if you can find your way to influence government, which you probably can't in the UK and the USA because, you know, we're massive nations with massive governments. But the success stories I've heard from, whether it's Malawi or the Philippines or, or various countries in the world where someone has managed to get the ear of the health minister and then bent their ear and said, emergency care can be planned, can be organized, we can do better. And of course, post-COVID, we should really have all taken as much advantage of that as we could. Unfortunately, I think our batteries were so low that we didn't maximize that opportunity. But it's not too late. COVID's not, you know, a long ago memory. And it did result in many emergency physicians being put in high management positions, whether it was in um, the pre-hospital um, coordination service or at um, the hospital level within the, you know, higher corridors of power. And a lot of people's careers were catapulted in a management uh, direction. And we have a lot of transferable skills. We are good problem solvers, prioritizers. We're good at finding alternative solutions, getting teams to pull together. So maybe, you know, when, you, when you <laughs> you've burned out from the clinical care, you know, we need to find ourselves in these influential positions. And the strides that have been made in some places, I just can't believe how effective these guys have been in campaigning for the specialty. I love the, um, the, the idea, because we talk about that a lot, that emergency physicians can succeed in so many areas that aren't just clinical medicine just because of the mindset and the work, the skill set that is necessary to be an emergency physician, the, um, the kind of sorting from chaos, the, you know, the stabilization, the rapid decision making, which may not always be the, may not always be the best, but um, you know, it's still being able to think on our feet, stay calm, that, that type of thing. Uh, but as we move forward, you know, how do we, you mentioned COVID, you mentioned some of that taking advantage of advancing emergency care here with ASAP. Um, you know, we, we are having this significant increase in kind of that globalization uh, of understanding the rest of the rest of the EM family around the world. Now, how do we, as all these organizations, all of these countries, uh, work together to continue to advance healthcare, to, to, to build more of a symbiotic relationship to advance emergency care, uh, of taking advantage of each other's successes, you know, minimizing failures, being able to share ideas, um, and improve, continuing to improve. 
Yeah, and I guess going back to my own organization, the International Federation for Emergency Medicine, that's what IFEM does is put a lot of people together in the same room um, and we try and solve problems together, create documents that help other people um, who are just looking for those kinds of resources that you can see on our website. Um, and even at the, the conference that we hold every year, the ISEM conference, I mean, for example, this year in Amsterdam, um, we put a bunch of the EOs, including Susadori, in a room with the other EOs, mm -hmm. and they enjoyed themselves so much comparing stories and sharing solutions that they needed extra time in the room because they just kept talking and talking and talking. And then we put all the presidents of the regional societies um, together, and we did a little showcase event on the final day of what are our, you know, snapshot of our problems in our region, uh, exploring the similarities and the differences, and there are actually way more similarities than there are differences. And yeah, together we are stronger. That's my motto, really, for this job. Um, and we can learn a lot from each other. Um, and I think that's what the Federation seeks to do, really, is, is put us in a, the same space. So how can folks get uh, information, either contacting you or information about IFEM as well? Sure. So IFEM, I-F-E-M.cc, put that into your search tool, and you'll find the website straight away. You'll see, um, firstly, all the resources and kind of things that I talked about, um, policy statements, minimum standards for geriatric care, pediatric care, et cetera, et cetera, curricula, core curricula. So if there are any listeners in the evolving EM um, space, then please look at the resources. You'll find that you don't have to reinvent the wheel. It's all there. If you want to get involved, we have special interest groups. We have 15 of them covering clinical topics and structural topics, you know, technology, uh, informatics, etc. So anybody can apply to be in a special interest group. Just go on the website and uh, there's a brief application form. And then from that, you could grow into a committee member or a board member. It's great having you. Appreciate it. Uh, thanks for joining us here on the front line, uh, talking with Dr. Fion Davis, president of the International Federation for Emergency Medicine, IFIM. Uh, her email is just her first, last, uh, first and last name with a period in the middle, Fion.Davis. But for those here in the United States, there is an E in there. So for us, it would be more consistent with Davies, um, but at IFIM.cc. Uh, so feel free to contact and really appreciate your time. Thank you very much for your time, Ryan. Pleasure yeah, absolutely. to meet you. Absolutely. As for me, you can contact me, rstanton at asep.org, rstanton at asep.org, or at everydaymed on X. I almost keep saying Twitter, but that's not the name anymore. So uh, at everydaymed on X. And until next time, I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton, and this has been some ASEP Frontline. If you're not on the front lines, you're on the sidelines. Cue the music. Bam, bam, bam. Quiet place. All yeah. alone. Da, da, da.